Welcome to Wilderness Tracks, in which artists, scientists, writers and thinkers tell me about six pieces of music that connect them to the natural world. Today I'm talking with Floella Benjamin, who for many years has combined a hugely successful broadcasting career with a passionate involvement with nature. I'm on top of the world at the moment. I think in lockdown I've been really creative and looking back and reflecting on my life and realising the importance of nature, the importance of finding your place in the world, the importance of gardening, the importance of the world around you, and I, I, I'm loving it. What should we call you? You've got so many titles and awards and things. What title? How, how should I address you? Well, being a baroness in the house of laws is terribly important to me. Uh, I'd like to be called baroness rather than lady, because if you're a lady, you could be because your husband's a baron that's you called a lady. But if you're a baroness, your husband is not necessarily called um, so or has any title. But a baroness means a lot to me because I am now standing in the House of Lords, a place where 400 years ago, the people dictated what happened to my ancestors. They were the slave owners, they were the plantation owners, and they dictated what happened to my ancestors back in the Caribbean. And so it's terribly important to me for people to call me Baroness. I'm very interested in what you said about the importance of nature to you and and a rediscovery of the value of nature and gardening uh, during lockdown. I wonder if you could say a little more about that. What's your garden like? I've got a lovely garden. I, in fact, had a wild garden long before it became fashionable to have a wildlife garden, a wild garden, wild things growing in there. It's a garden full of love because my children loved being in that garden. I can hear, still hear the laughter and the joy that they had running around in the garden. We had a treehouse and they used to climb up in the treehouse looking down and looking around them. I've got a little, had a little plot where they grew their own plants and they grew their own vegetables. I've got things that my mother gave to me, plants that my mother gave to me that I'm now planted in my garden. So I remember her so passionately because my mother was a natural gardener. Everything she touched <laughs> flourished and, and blossomed. And I have a garden full of, of butterflies and garden full of bees, a garden full of foxes. In fact, I saw a, a hummingbird moth the other day and I, I went out into the garden this morning and it is swarming with bees and wasps. Every time I go out there, I'm always, you know, in awe. I have a, a, also a, a robin that comes and sits next to me not one of those manicured gardens. And I've got two rose bushes, which I planted when my children were born. My son, who is now 39, as a rose bush, a red rose that we planted for him, and, and it blossoms. I always know what's happening in his life by the amount of rose buds that comes out. And I've got a pink rose for my daughter. And so those are very precious to me. So everything in my garden has some sort of significance. It's a beautiful garden that I love walking around, contemplating, wondering why people can't cherish this wonderful gift that we've been given, a precious world. Why can't we kind of nurture it and leave it as not just a dustbin for future generations, but for a wonderful, exquisite feeling of joy and happiness for others to share? Why can't we do that? I also 
think, listening to what you say, it's very important to recognise the way that gardens connect generations. You know, I, I was introduced to gardening by my mother, just digging in a, with a trowel in a bed to keep me quiet. And I garden with my children now. I think it's such a, a great inheritance, isn't it? Very much so, you know. Uh, and I am an RHS ambassador. So I go into schools and I encourage children to garden. I encourage children to be close to nature. And last year they made me an RHS vice president. And when I got my little badge, it was, again, so significant because it represented my mum. My mum, who introduced me to gardening, like you, my mum had a wonderful garden in, in Trinidad. I was born in Trinidad and, you know, I used to naturally watch her plant fruits, plant vegetables, uh, and then she would cook them. So I'm very, you know, close to nature. So when I got my vice president's badge, I said, Mommy, this is for you. I'm dedicating this to you. <laughs> that is wonderful. Um Speaking of inheritances, we're going to come to your musical selections now and talk about the ways in which perhaps they connect you with the natural world. And the first one, you mentioned you grew up in Trinidad. I suspect there's a connection there, but your first choice is Harry Belafonte, Island in the Sun. Why, why did you pick that one? Oh, Island in the Sun is so, it's so symbolic to me and my life in many, many, many different ways. As I said, I was born in Trinidad and uh, we didn't have television because I was born 1949. We had to make our own entertainment. But also my dad used to take us to the outdoor cinema. And that was so exciting for a little girl to go up there and see the big screen with all the Hollywood stars. Because my dad was a bit of an adventurer. He said, there's a world out there to go and capture. And you can capture things through seeing movies and seeing the big screen and seeing people perform. And I remember Island in the Sun because up on the screen was a black man starring in a film. A black man, one of the first black men you saw on the big screen, also with Dorothy Dandridge. And I, I remember seeing my Caribbean on the screen and feeling, well, maybe... I can be part of that world one day. And I'm sure deep in, deep in my mind, that was my inspiration because there he was. There was Dorothy Dandridge on a big screen. And interestingly, I, I met Harry Belafonte years, years ago in Jamaica. And uh, we chatted, we exchanged stories about Caribbean life because, you know, he was born in Jamaica. And I have such great admiration for him because as well as being a fine actor, he's also an activist, a civil rights activist. So as well as the song, you know, encapsulating caps all the feeling I have for the Caribbean, when you feel the warmth and you hear the music and you see the, the, you know, the island, you feel spiritually that you're connected to this great place, knowing what your ancestors get, went through, knowing what they had to, to go through to get me to where I am today. Not just my parents, but as I'm saying way back, when you feel all of that, you feel spiritually connected. And to know that you're spiritually connected to a place like the Caribbean is such a great feeling. And I think Island in the Sun conjures up all of that. Oh, Island in the Sun, built to me by my father's hand. All my days I will sing in praise of your forest waters, your shining sand. And he wrote the song for the film, 
and it talks of, you know, the forest waters and the shining sand. So as well as seeing this man in front of you on the big screen, you're also seeing the landscape of the Caribbean in front of you. How important was that? Oh, terribly important, because it just showed me where I was living was, uh, was important enough to be on a big screen for the world to see. And, uh, you know, when I was on play school, I used to say to the producers, the imagery that we put on the screen has got to reflect the lives of all children that are watching. Because there was a time when I did play school where all the stories I read, the illustrations were all of white children. And I, I said to the producer one day, Cynthia, darling, can't we have some black and Asian and Chinese faces and stories that reflect the thousands and hundreds of children out there watching because they don't feel as if they belong. So me seeing Island in the Sun made me understand that I was in a place that should be treasured and celebrated. The only thing there uh, about that is that when they talked about the Caribbean, they said it was a jungle. <laughs> but the scenery spoke for itself, the beautiful shores. The film was, made, was uh, shot in Barbados and Grenada. Grenada is one of the most beautiful islands to go to. It smells of nutmeg. When you get off the plane and the door opens, you get that warm heat hits you, but also the smell of nutmeg, the spice islands. And so you get this lovely feeling that you breathe in joy and happiness and spiritualness. And if you close your eyes now and you put yourself in the position of seven, eight-year-old Floella Benjamin... What kind of impressions did that landscape make on you? What, what was the lasting impression, sensual impression on you of that landscape? I think the smell of the flowers, the sound of crickets at night, that kind of warm, glowing feeling that it gave you, that wafting of the breeze, that feeling of the waves lapping against the shore, spiritually, you're connected to a world that is undamaged, untainted. That's the kind of feeling I, I, I had when I was growing up. It was a joyful that feeling that you took for granted and you thought, you know, isn't everyone feeling like this? Isn't that happening in all parts of the world? The rain, you danced in the rain. The smell of the rain, because when I go back to the, the Caribbean and, and it rains, I smell it. And it, you know, kind of tingles and that excitement, it comes up in my head because childhood lasts a lifetime. And what you experience as a child, you never know what might switch it back on again. You never know. Our minds weren't really, um, really damaged by understanding slavery because in Trinidad, they taught you British history and the history books written in Britain didn't really reflect my ancestors and my life. So we didn't grow up knowing about slavery so in a way, I think growing up in the Caribbean, knowing that I was a person, I wasn't a colour in the Caribbean, I was a person. It's only when I came to Britain that I realised that people saw me as a colour. So I had quite a, a happy, joyful childhood. From the first eight, nine years of my life, it was so happy and so joyful because I had two wonderful parents who made me the person I am today. So let's move on to our next piece. You've chosen a piece that takes us from the Caribbean uh, and follows your own journey across the Atlantic to Europe. April in Paris by Sarah Vaughan. I like to imagine that 
you chose this one because if I'm correct, when you sang this in the first episode of Bergerac, everyone thought it was Sarah Vaughan singing it. Is that correct? <laughs> Actually, I, I sang Love a Man. I don't know why, but I'm feeling so sad. Sarah Vaughan, the wonderful Sarah Vaughan. You know, my dad was a jazz musician. And he introduced me to singing and to the joys of music. And he always used to say, I reminded him of Lena Horne and Sarah Vaughan. Sarah Vaughan, the velvety qualities of Sarah Vaughan. I adore Sarah Vaughan. And as you said, I, when I sang Love a Man in the very first episode of Bergerac, people did think it was Sarah Vaughan. People said, you know, why don't you take up singing? <laughs> As a profession, you know, because uh, I love singing, but I, I suppose I didn't ever concentrate on just doing that. And I love her singing April in Paris because I love Paris, especially during the springtime, you know. And April in Paris, it's kind of the song conjures up that early feeling of spring and the magic of spring in Paris with the blossoms, the beautiful blossoms. And I feel so Parisian when I'm in Paris, so stylish. And uh, to be able to use your imagination wherever you are in the world and to become whatever you want to be in that world is magical. And April in Paris, when you listen to the song and the words, it conjures up just that. April in Paris Chestnuts in blossom Holiday tables it's my favourite city and the one I missed most during lockdown. And it was precisely because we were, it was springtime. Yeah. And when I think of Paris, obviously you think of the, the normal tourist things, but it's really the trees in the parks and that yeah. smell of the dust and the trees in the Jardin de Luxembourg, for example. It really is a beautiful, natural city as well as a metropolis, isn't it? Very much so. And I used to, when our children were young, every year we used to take them to Paris and we do the same thing, go down the Seine River. And I love being near water as well. Water is so spiritual. The trees, as you're saying, the avenue, the long avenues. You know, when you drive, when we used to drive, we had a house in Latouque, and we used to drive from Latouque to Paris. And some of those streets, you know, with the long avenues of trees, you know, on either side, and that feeling that you are in a, a special place, a special world that's been created for the human spirit and the human soul. Ah, and then you start being creative. And that's why you see a lot of, of people, it's like being in, a, in an ant's nest, you know, crazy, crazy, crazy. And you're crazy, crazy, crazy because of what's been created. It's been created in a, in a crazy type world that you feel that's the only way to operate. I say, no, break out. Go to Paris. April in Paris, ah, oh, chestnuts and blossoms, ah, oh, ah, oh, I can just feel it now. I'm there. I'm floating. I wish I was there, but you, you did nearly take me there. <laughs> but your father, I saw a photograph of him on Twitter earlier on, on your Twitter feed. Somebody had colorized it. Um, he was such a dapper, stylish guy with a saxophone there. Uh, how important was that love of music that he clearly transmitted to you? And how has it sustained you and nourished you over the years? 
Very, very much so. I, you know, I learned the joys of music and to understand music because of my dad. He was always playing music in the house. He was always practicing his saxophone and he wanted to come to England to learn to play jazz. And he had a great life. He played in, in all over the world. He played with some of the big bands. He played, uh, in, in fact, with a group called the Mohicans. And the Mohicans were one of the top bands in the country with people like the Rolling Stones as a supporting act. And he went to Germany with them, to Scotland, you know, all over. At Sweden, he adored music. And at one time, when my mother said to him, Roy, we have six children and you can't keep gallivanting around the world. You have to find a job here, you know, in London. And so he worked for British Rail uh, during the day. And in the evenings, he would go and, and play music. He formed his own band. And he wanted the singer for the band. So he auditioned my sister and I, my sister Sandra, who's older than me. And I had to audition for singing in the band. And my sister Sandra had a, has a beautiful voice, but she's so shy. She didn't want to do it. Now, I loved singing. I remember singing an Ella Fitzgerald song for him, Ladies a Tramp. And he said, Flo Gill, you have the front. You can be the singer. And I was kind of a teenager. And my first gig with him was uh, Annalee Town Hall. <laughs> and I was singing with the band. And ever since then, you know, on a Saturday, I would go out and sing with him in clubs, you know, in conservative clubs, labour party clubs, workman clubs, in weddings, you name it. And he knew I was a showgirl. And so being on the stage, singing with him came naturally. I just loved it. And I loved that kind of feeling of expressing myself through music. And up until he died, he still used to practice his saxophone. And our family, I'm, I'm one of six children, on his birthday, we all say, this is to the great man who never lost his joy and his feel for music and jazz, especially. In fact, apparently he called me Ella, Flo Ella, after Ella Fitzgerald and uh, after Flowers, because he said I, I, he knew I would blossom somehow or other. So he named his children Ellington, Lester after Lester Young. So most of us have got jazz or musical names that he, he gave to us. Your dad sounds like the coolest man in town. <laughs> um, so we moved from Paris. I love the international flavour of your selections. First the Caribbean, then to Paris, and then back to a, a very, very British song, which is October Song from the Incredible String Band the lyrics beside the sea the brambly briars birds fly out behind the sun to listen to it it's it's so much of that british folk tradition isn't it and and in in its relationship to the landscape around us i'll sing you this october song oh there is no song before it the words and tune are none of my own for my joys and sorrows bore it Beside the sea, the brambly briars in the still off evening. Well, I got to know this song through my husband, my husband Keith. We've been together 50 years and it's one of his favourite songs. And it conjures up what we are all about, both of us, because we're born a day apart. He, when he was 10, he came from Yorkshire to London. And when I was 10, I came 
from Trinidad to London, and we live streets apart. And this song to us is a song about life, about being contented with the time that you have here on earth. You have to protect the earth and by how you're living your life. And when you listen to the words, it, they tell such an emotional story. As you say, the third verse, the fallen leaves that jewel the ground, they know the art of dying and leave with joy their glad gold hearts in the scarlet shadows lying. That's about the autumn. We're autumn babies. We're born in September. And the autumn leaves that fall, they fall with style and they die with dignity. And that golden leaf, I suppose, for a lot of Caribbeans, when they came here, they described the streets being paved with gold. And again, that beautiful feel of life floating down and dying, but you don't have to be f afraid of dying. You die with dignity and with style. And another verse that I love, I used to search for happiness and I used to follow pleasure, but I found a door behind my mind and that's the greatest treasure. The greatest treasure, which is the treasure of finding contentment instead of always searching for more, more, more. And I think with, you know, with COVID-19 and the pandemic that we're going through, it's given people the opportunity to live that, that verse in this song. What does contentment mean? Do I have enough? When you see so many people grabbing and taking and not sharing and the haves and the haves not and that gap getting wider and wider, when you die, you're going to have to leave it all behind. So why not share it when you have it? Another verse is, I met a man whose name was Time, and he said, I must be going. But just how long that was, I have no way of knowing. Time waits for no one. When you die, you don't look back and say, I wish, I wish I hadn't done this. Please forgive me. Don't, 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 don't. Do it now. Do it now. I'm now 70. I'm 71 this year. And I've never been more happy. If I die tomorrow, deep in my heart, I know I've tried my best. Did you always have that contentment? Or was there a, a moment or a period where you realised that you needed to change tack in order to get contentment in your life? Or a moment where you, you recognised the importance of contentment as opposed to ambition, greed, whatever it might be? You know, my mother... <laughs> Always used to say to me, Flogil, you're never contented. You always want to do more. You always want more. Can't you be contented? And I used to think, what does contentment mean? And one day, spiritually, I found it. If you understand who you are in your heart, that's the most important thing. It's not what others think of you. If people don't like the colour of your skin, it's their problem. If people don't like what you're trying to do in this world, if you're doing the good and the right thing, then it's their problem, not yours. And it suddenly dawned on me at the age of 14 when I found contentment. And what's right for you will come to you in time. Rather than stamping on other people, doing anything you want, you know, 
wanting, wanting, wanting more in this materialistic-led world. The advertising that goes around you telling you you should be, you should be this or you should be that. No, you have to throw all that off and say, it's not what the world is telling me I should be, it's what I spiritually know what I should be. That's when you feel find contentment. And this song teaches you that. Listen to each word. Each word is a rich jewel that's been given to us. There's a brilliant version of that song. I think I actually prefer it by Bert Jansch, where if, if anything, the words are allowed to shine out more. And you really get the strong sense of those natural images and, and the kind of the melancholy, but the beauty and, as you say, the emotions that are being portrayed. Uh, but on to the next song or piece of music, to be more precise. So this is Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Do you want to introduce it? Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Ah, what a man. He was a great composer uh, who is sadly often forgotten by many because I think it's because he was black. He was a black man living, writing and creating great music in the 19th and early 20th century. And he died a sad life in 1912, aged just 37. He faced so much racism and prejudices and inequality. And he died actually finishing writing his last piece of music. And for years I've been trying and, and trying to, to make a film of his life. But uh, over the years, over the last 20 years or more, they've been saying to me, oh, black films don't sell. People don't want to know about black stories. But I think hopefully now is the time. Now is the time to persuade somebody to back me and get the you know his story on the big screen, you know, and he deserves it, especially today with the, the rise of Black Lives Matters. To say, you know, it's not just today that Black people have been in this country, but for centuries Black people have been part of British society and British history. But um, interestingly, back in his life and his time, he was also a campaigner for uh, for equality. And because of him, now we have what you call PRS, the Performing Rights Society, where musicians get paid whenever their music is being used. And his music was so popular and is used even today. Back in the time when he was alive, you know, thousands of people used to go to the Royal Albert Hall to hear his music. Uh, and they would have heard this piece of music, Hiawatha's Wedding Feast. Now, Hiawatha's Wedding Feast um, is obviously, you, you, you might know, is based on and inspired by the poem by Longfellow. And it conjures up that vast plains of America before the Europeans invaded that land and destroyed so much. Uh, it's heartbreaking what was done, you know, to the Native American Indians who were at that time as one with nature and they understood nature. They could listen to the ground and know what was happening. They could feel it, how to survive on the land, the great sweeping plains of America. And the music seems to capture that majestic surroundings that they were living in at that time. And I wish we could still live in that world because it was a gift to us here on earth. But sadly, so much of it has been destroyed. But the music, can take you back there. The music can fire up your imagination to enjoy the American landscape. He, he, he is a genius. Samuel Goldrich Taylor is a genius. And I so want people to understand 
what he was about, who he was. Interestingly, uh, as I said, he was a campaigner, and I found out that he had a meeting in Westminster Hall in Parliament <laughs> talking about uh, the African people who lived in Britain who were treated unfairly. And he, you know, he was a man of dignity. He was a man of integrity. He was also a man who was basically ripped off, wasn't he? Because this piece of music was hugely popular and hundreds of thousands of copies of it were sold. But he actually only received, I think, 15 guineas as a kind of one-off payment at the beginning, and that was that. That's right, and it was shameful. But Samuel Coldridge Taylor, he knew he was being ripped off, he knew all of that, but he didn't stop him from creating great music. He was huge in America. He was huge over there. But somehow, I think being black is so hard, you know. it's, It's tough being black. And people might say to me, oh, come on, Floella, you know, uh, you're successful. Look what you've done. Look what you've achieved. But it's all relative. The higher you go, the more adversity you have to, to face. And I face it even today. People say, how come? How come you can do that? How come you're here? What are you doing here? The amount of times I've heard that. I first heard it when I came to Britain in 1960. What are you doing here? Why don't you get out of our country? Why don't you go back? And I still hear it today. When we had Brexit, the vote came through. I remember somebody pushing a trolley in the back of my legs, saying, what are you still doing here? <laughs> and it's just, you know, uh, even when people recognise me as Floella, I get the, oh, we love you, Floella. You're, you know, you're from play school. You've been, you, you are everything. But if people don't recognise you and they see you just as a black woman, a black person, I'm telling you, it's tough. It's tough. You were a fighter in the schoolyards of your childhood and then you changed your approach when you met with that kind of horrible prejudice. But when, you know, you're having somebody ram their shopping trolley into you, into Baroness Floella Benjamin, for goodness sake, is a 14-year-old version of yourself that wants to start scrapping again? Because then I would have gone down to their level. I look at them and I said, why do you do that? Do you hate me that much? Why? And people kind of, you know, because they're not, because they're not expecting that kind of reaction, they kind of, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. You know, but I, I, you know, I think if you were to turn on, on, in, a, in a vicious way, that's what people are expecting. I, I once, I got a job and this person said to me, you've only got it because you're black. They're being politically correct. And I said to her, well, you've only got to where you are because you're white. Now it's my turn. And she couldn't argue with me. So I always find, philosophically, I give an answer that people aren't expecting. And that's the way to win. And I don't like losing. I realised, you know, from a very young age that I'm a winner and I was going to be a winner. And to be a winner, you have to be like an SAS agent to the unexpected. So we've got two more pieces of music to come. The one I know least about of all six of your choices is always a bit of a blind spot for me. Robert Palmer, Batley's finest son. Bad case of loving you. Why, why should I give him a second listen? <laughs> what, what is it about this song that made you want to choose it? A bad case of loving you. It starts off hot summer nights. I felt like a neck. And I love singing this song because it conjures up that feeling of 
excitement, summer nights, dancing away. And I only discovered it when I was the age of 57, when I started singing with the author, Ken Follett and his band. And when I was a Chancellor of Exeter University back in 2006, I was Chancellor for 10 years and I hugged every single graduate. I did all, every single ceremony for 10 years, hugging them all. And uh, I would tell them, go out and change the world and make a difference. Make the Chancellor proud, make yourself proud. But for the graduation ball, I got Ken and the boys to come down to Exeter and Chancellor took off her hat and her gown and put on her rock gear up on the stage singing rock and roll for the, for the uh, graduates. They used to call it the Change the World Ball and they'd be chanting, change the world, change the world. And I'd be rocking and singing, hot summer night fell like a net. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I used to take off into orbit. I think I'm the only singing chancellor in the country. In fact, I was the first black woman chancellor in this country. That was in 2006. But not many chancellors can strut around the stage like Tina Turner, you know, or ZZ Top singing ZZ Top. Give me all your love and all your hugs and kisses too. Ah, oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> you mentioned about the children shouting, change the world. And a lot of young people now are trying to change the world, in particularly in relation to climate change. How optimistic are you about their chances of changing the world? Oh, that is such a big question. This world is eating up itself. We've been given, I see, in a way, a last chance. And our children are telling us, this is not fair. Do something. I was looking at the opening of the 2012 Olympics with Danny Boyle, you know, his great show that he put on. And it dawned on me, when you look at the opening of the, the show he'd put on, it was green fields, it was children running, it was grass and trees and birds and animals running around. And then suddenly this industrial war with factories belching out smoke People working in sweatshops, terrible life of not enjoying nature anymore, but they're busy in cotton mills, in factories. To me, it goes back as far as that, you know. And everything that's being created, all the modern things that's being created, is destroying our world. We need to go back. And I'm not saying, you, you know, we, we don't have, you shouldn't have progress. But progress comes at a price. And this is our last chance. Our last chance. How are we going to protect our world? I'm now on a, a committee called Beyond COVID in, on, in Parliament, and we're looking at the future in every aspect. And climate change is something that we're looking at in a way of how we can help formulate policy, how, what, what kind of policy should government be taking. And I think the way to get people to take responsibility is through psychology. If I do A, but the world that we're living in blindly drags you into it. It sucks you into it. As, as we look at these huge decisions that we need to take, part of it has to be built on optimism. And you seem to me to be filled with optimism and the possibility 
of change. It brings us nicely, in a way, to the final piece of music, to the final song, which is so optimistic. <laughs> Aquarius, let the sun shine in, which features in hair, which had a rather important part in your biography. Yes, yes. Um, I am a woman of hope. We can, I always feel that we can invent our way out of what we're going through. And hair and Aquarius and let the sun shine in, just that. And I sang these two songs at least a thousand times while I was in the, the musical hair. That was my first start on stage 50 years ago. Because I, before that, I used to work in a bank. And I saw an ad saying, singers and dancers wanting... And I went in my lunch hour dressed in a, a page boy wig and a short dress. Well, that was in the 60s, as I said. And I got there and they said, you know, what are you going to sing? And I sang, I've got you under my skin. Bah, bah. Oh, lovely, lovely. Can you move? Can I move? Well, I went one way. The wig went the other way, and there was a roar of laughter from the auditorium. So lovely, wonderful, wonderful. Can you read, read for us? So go backstage and get the lines to read. So I went backstage and I looked at my watch and realized it was the hour, because I'm here in my lunch hour from the bank. So I went back on and I did my reading and said, lovely, lovely, lovely. And they said, can you hang around a bit longer? And I said, listen, I don't know who you are out there, but I've got a proper job in a bank and I don't need you. If you want me, I want £30 a week, which is a lot of money in those days, and I'm not taking my clothes off. And they said, but you've got to take your clothes off. This is hair. And I said, I don't care what it is. My mum wouldn't like me taking my clothes off. Anyway, I'm off. And I left. By the time I got back to the bank, they'd called up to say they wanted me. Because that's how I started off in show business. But I never took my clothes off. And so that audition that got me onto the, 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 the treadmill of show business has taken me to a, a place where, goodness knows, I'd never foreseen when I was that little girl in Trinidad watching the big screen. That was part of my journey that I didn't understand. But you get to an age, when you get to my age, about 70, you look back and you reflect. My daughter's a teacher and she's a geography teacher. She thinks everybody should learn geography because when you understand about geography, you realize what a wonderful world we've been given and you look around you every time you look out of your window every time you look out onto the plains and the rivers the valleys the mountains the hills it's something to admire and I feel I feel blessed if I was to die tomorrow I would think yes I appreciated what I was given I appreciated my world and I'm hoping that I've left a legacy back for other people to follow and to help change the world. There's something about the song as well, which is wonderful and unashamedly kind of hippie-ish in, in the way that it looks to the cosmos and it's talking about Jupiter aligning with Mars, that peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. And um, I was talking for this podcast with Dr. Maggie Adderin Pocock from The Sky at Night, and she was reflecting on the relationship she has with the environment of the of the planets and 
I was fascinated by that. I wondered if you, in reflecting now, look out at the planets and the night sky and, and take solace from that or recognise beauty oh, in it? very much so. There's a place we go to in Portugal and a place in, in France that, you know, it's there's no... There's no light pollution. It's complete darkness. You have to have a torch when you're walking along. It's perfect. It's perfection. And if you take time to look at the cosmos, to look at the planets, to listen to a song like Aquarius, you then get a deeper understanding. But we, we, know, we just brush it aside, don't we? We're so... We, we're, we're having to deal with so much information that when you go to a place where there's no light pollution, you know, and, you know, and, and to, to be able to grasp all of that and to see all of that. And I love lying when I'm lying on the beach, look up at the sky and look at the cloud formation, you know, with the fluffy clouds. And I, I can see things in them. Uh, sunshine in your, on, on your body, sunshine on your back. When you go to the Caribbean and you come off the plane, and it hits you, or when you're on a ship, you're floating along, and the air hits you, you realise just how lucky we are. Just just finally then, there's a line from one of the songs, October song earlier on. Mostly I just stroll along, it says. And you were, of course, the president of the Rambles Association, as it was then. And I wondered whether you still take great pleasure in walking. Uh, is it still something that gives you a chance to encounter the natural environment around you? Very much so. I love walking in Cumbria. Every year, at least once or twice a year, my husband and I, we go to Cumbria and we walk for seven, eight hours a day. And I sit up there in the hills and I look down at the valleys, the U-shaped valleys, look at the lakes, and I think, aren't I lucky to be part of this? I love I love going there in the autumn when you see those autumn leaves fall and there you know you climb the hills and in front of you is gold and walking in the hills of Cumbria to me is my spiritual home and if I die maybe my ashes could be scattered there Baroness Floella Benjamin it's been an absolute delight Wilderness Tracks is produced by me, Jeff Bird, as part of the Timber Festival. If you enjoyed this episode, there are more to enjoy wherever you get your podcasts. Please do like and subscribe. The series is made in association with the National Forest, where timber takes place each July.